All right, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Ezra. We are in Ezra chapter 3 this morning. If you're new with us this morning, first of all, welcome. Glad you're here. You should know that we started a series on the book of Ezra a few weeks ago. And so that's where we are this morning is in Ezra chapter 3. If you're wondering where Ezra is, it is in the Old Testament after First and Second Chronicles. Before Nehemiah and Esther and Job, you find the book of Ezra. Here at Free Money Free, we like to take books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse because we really do believe that this book is the Word of God and we want the Word of God to set the agenda. And so this morning, that means we're in Ezra 3 with the agenda that we'll find in that chapter. So let's pray and then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your Word together today as a church. It is a blessing. In fact, it's a gigantic blessing that we often take for granted, that we can gather together without fear of repercussion, without fear of persecution or imprisonment or even execution, really is a blessing and one that we do not want to take lightly. We thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of gathering with your people and being able to study your word together and to do so for our joy and for your glory. So help us to have gratitude this morning as we open your word. Help us to have a fresh sense of the good news that we would, this morning, think about what we read in your word and that we would be freshly affected again, as if we're hearing it for the first time. Lord, help us not to hear your word and, and to just think, well, we've heard that before. But rather, help us to see what it is. It's your word. It's living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. And so, Lord, we just pray that your word would do a work in our hearts this morning. Stir our affections and help us to know the joy of following you. Lord, we ask this in your name, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So when it comes to the news, sometimes there are things in the news that are just plain depressing or even anxiety-producing, stories that make you concerned about the direction that we're headed in or stories that make you sad that the world we live in is so broken. But other times there are stories in the news that just leave you scratching your head and wondering why. A recent story from the state of Michigan would fall into the latter category. A couple of weeks ago, authorities in, Michigan's had, authorities in Michigan had to rescue a woman who'd become trapped in an outhouse toilet at a northern Michigan boat launch. Apparently, the woman had dropped her Apple watch into the outhouse toilet and decided that the best course of action was to lower herself down into the hole and try to retrieve it. According to police spokesperson, she then became trapped in the, quote, muck and was unable to climb back out of the toilet. Now, fortunately for this woman, when she started calling for help, bystanders heard her and they called 911. And when the first responders arrived, they were able to remove the toilet and then use this strap to hoist her to safety. Afterwards, the Michigan State Police released a statement. Again, I quote, if you lose an item in an outhouse toilet, do not attempt to venture inside the containment area. Serious injury may occur. And indeed it may. There's actually stories of people dying in outhouse toilets because they got stuck and no one heard their cries. Now, thankfully, this story in Michigan did not have that ending. But even with the relatively happy ending, I still have to ask the question, why? Why would you crawl into an outhouse pit to retrieve a watch? Even if the watch costs a couple of hundred dollars, is it really worth it? Should you prioritize a watch over your safety? Should you prioritize a watch over what I would characterize as some pretty serious sanitary issues? Should you prioritize a watch over basic human dignity? I think the answer to those questions is obvious. The answer should be no. Even in the best case scenario, if you retrieve your watch and you climb out of the toilet unscathed, I personally cannot imagine a scenario where I would feel comfortable wearing that watch again. All of that to say, if you find yourself willingly going down an outhouse toilet hole to do anything other than rescue another human being or try to hide from someone who's trying to kill you, chances are at some point along the line you have misplaced your priorities. 
But listen, while a story like the one in Michigan may be an extreme example, somewhat gross one of misplaced priorities, you don't have to climb down an outhouse toilet to have a messed up sense of what matters most. On a daily basis, we all make decisions about the things that we are going to prioritize. And sometimes the decisions that we make in terms of our own priorities are just as senseless as climbing down the outhouse toilet to retrieve a watch. For example, how many of us have sacrificed family or marriage just to make a little bit more money? How many people have prioritized worldly success over integrity and character? How many people have turned off their moral compass in order to satisfy their selfish desires? How many people have sacrificed relationships because they cared more about winning an argument than they did about the person that they're arguing with? How many people have stored up treasures on earth and neglected the one treasure that matters most, the treasure that's still to come? Again, you don't have to crawl down an outhouse toilet to have misplaced priorities. Prioritizing the wrong things is a real danger for every single person in this room, which is why we need to be reminded regularly that we need to keep first things first, to prioritize that which truly matters. I think that's where today's passage is exceptionally helpful. In Ezra chapter 3, we're reminded of what we as the people of God are meant to prioritize, and our priority is to be the worship of God. The reality is that there are all kinds of things in this world that can distract us, all kinds of things that can get our priorities out of whack. But our task is to keep first things first, to prioritize the worship of God and prioritize connection with God above everything else. So that's it. Let's turn our attention then to Ezra chapter 3 this morning. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand at this point out of reverence for the reading of God's word. You'll be happy to know after last week's 70-verse marathon, only 13 verses this morning. All right, so Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse 1. The words will be on the screen here. You can follow along that way, or you can read your own Bibles, or you can just listen as I read. But Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says this. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedek, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them, because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it's written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. 
But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So before we dive into the details of this particular chapter, it's probably helpful for us to reset where we are so far in the book of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 1, you may remember that we learned some background information. We learned that the people of Judah were coming back from exile. They're coming back from captivity into the land of Judah. As we noted back in chapter 1, the people of Judah were taken captive by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. But when Cyrus and the Persians captured or, or conquered the Babylonians, Cyrus made a decree that the people of Judah could return to their land. And he even authorized them to begin rebuilding the temple, which had also been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So that's the background information that we learned in chapter 1. In chapter 2, which we looked at last week, we found a long list of names. In fact, it was a really long list of names. And those names simply represented the Jewish people and their families as they were returning from exile. But now in chapter 3, we find the first account of the actions of the people once they've returned to the land. And in a nutshell, we could sum up their actions or their first actions in one word, worship, worship. Chapter 3 begins with mention of the seventh month. We see this in verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now mention of the seventh month is significant and perhaps should get our attention because in the Jewish calendar, the seventh month was perhaps the most sacred of all the months. On the first day of the seventh month, there was a day of solemn rest that would be proclaimed by a blast of trumpets. On the tenth day of the seventh month was the day of atonement, which was the only day during the year in which the high priest of Israel could go into the Holy of Holies. On that day, the high priest would perform elaborate rituals and offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the people would begin the week-long Feast of Booths. During the Feast of Booths, the people would travel to Jerusalem, And they would then live in tents or booths for a period of seven days as a way of commemorating God's faithfulness in the wilderness. When the people left Egypt, God provided for them in the wilderness for 40 years, and they would commemorate this at the Feast of Booths. So when the author of Ezra mentions that the events of chapter 3 are taking place in the seventh month, he's not just giving us a marker of time. He's setting up the rest of the chapter and helping us understand why they're doing what they're doing in chapter 3. And again, what they're doing in chapter 3 primarily is worshiping. That's very apparent from the beginning. So let's go back again to verse 1 and then into verse 2. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedach, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it's written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So in verses 1 and 2 here, we're told that the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. In other words, they're unified. They're coming together, and they're building an altar to offer sacrifices to God. An altar, as you may know, is a structure upon which offerings such as sacrifices were made. It was usually a raised platform with a flat surface. In verse 2, we're told that the people built an altar in order to offer up burnt offerings, just as it's written in the Law of Moses. When a burnt offering was offered, the whole animal would be burnt as a symbol of total consecration and devotion to God. In offering burnt offerings, the people were wanting to demonstrate their commitment to God. They were offering up something valuable, an animal that would have meant something to them, and they were burning the whole thing and saying, we value you, God, more than we value this animal. 
That's what the people are doing. Their their commitment is evident in the fact they're building an altar to offer sacrifices. We see this commitment also in the language of verse 3. Verse 3, they set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the people of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now as it relates to the language of verse 3 here, we're not sure. Did the people build the altar in spite of their fear? We know they're afraid. We're not sure. Did they build it in spite of their fear or did they build it because they were afraid? In other words, were they saying, we need to build this altar, we're afraid, but we don't care, we're going to do it? Or were they so afraid that they didn't know what else to do? We know the only place we can turn to is God, so let's build an altar. We're not sure, but either way, the language of verse 3 would help us understand that they prioritize worship of God over their fear. Based on the law of Moses, the people knew in order to draw near to God, they needed to offer right sacrifices. And so even though they're afraid, they build an altar And they offer sacrifices anyway. They were rightly committed to worshiping God. We see this commitment also in verses 4 to 6. Verse 4, and they kept the feast of booze as it's written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rules each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord. And the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So as I mentioned earlier, during the Feast of Booze, the people of Israel would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and then they would live in tents or booths for a period of seven days as a way of commemorating God's faithfulness in the wilderness over those 40 years. Now you should understand something. This pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booze was costly in many ways. Not only was there the cost of travel, which would have been significant, and the cost of offerings, of which there were many, but there was also the reality that when you left your town to go to Jerusalem, your home and your land would be vacant and vulnerable. And in the era before home security systems and ring doorbells, leaving your home in such a state was a dangerous proposition, especially when you consider that all the other people that you would have trusted, those who were trying to follow God, were going to Jerusalem with you. The only people that would be left behind are those that are not trying to follow the same God that you're trying to follow. In other words, you're leaving your land, your home, vulnerable. There's no guarantee when you came back it would be in the same condition. And yet, as we see in verses 4 to 6, the people went anyway. And there's definitely a sense in this passage that they were united in doing so. They went as one man to Jerusalem. They're prioritizing worship over their safety and security. We see this same commitment to worship in verses 7 to 9. Verse 7, so they gave money to the masons and to the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they'd they'd had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with the sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. So in verse 7, we see that the people are giving money towards the building of the temple. In verses 8 to 9, the building of the temple begins in earnest. And twice we're told in those verses that there were people supervising the work. This language reminds us that they cared greatly about what the temple looked like. They wanted to make sure it was built correctly. And they did so because the temple was their place of worship. In the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God's glory dwelt and the place where the people of God would go to worship and offer their sacrifices and their tithes. 
Now, obviously, the people of God could worship without the temple, which is why they build the altar first before they begin building the foundations of the temple. But nevertheless, the temple was a huge part of worship for the people of Israel, which is why the rebuilding of the temple in the book of Ezra is such a significant thing. Because the temple wasn't just a building, it was a place of worship. The temple needed to be rebuilt so that the people could worship properly. And in all of that, we're simply reminded in Ezra chapter 3, when the people of God go back to their land, they prioritized worship. They prioritized worship over their safety. They prioritized worship over their comfort. They prioritized worship over their material possessions. They prioritized worship over their money. They prioritized worship over their convenience. They prioritized worship over everything else. There are plenty of other times in the Old Testament where the people of Israel get things wrong. But here in Ezra 3, it seems that they get things right. What I want to argue this morning is that we should have the same mindset that they had in Ezra chapter 3. That we should prioritize worship over everything else. Now in saying that, I think there are a couple of things we need to clarify. I think first we need to clarify what we mean by worship. And secondly, I think we need to clarify what true worship looks like when it's put into action. So first, let's just answer this question. What do we mean by worship? When we talk about worship, I'm not talking primarily about religious ordinances. I'm not talking about things like offering sacrifices or building temples or observing feasts. For that matter, I'm not talking primarily about singing songs, which is often how we use the word worship in our context. Rather, when I'm talking about worship, what I'm talking about is an acknowledgement in our hearts that God has all of the power and he deserves all of the glory. Or to use a definition from John Piper, true worship is valuing or treasuring God above all things. True worship is valuing or treasuring God above all things. So just hear me clearly here. When I talk about prioritizing worship, I'm not talking primarily about building altars or offering burnt sacrifices or building a temple or for that matter, in our context, singing songs. What I'm talking about primarily when I talk about worship is valuing and treasuring God above everything else. I would argue that in Ezra chapter 3, the people worship God not by offering sacrifices, at least not primarily, but rather the way that they offered or the way that they offered up their worship was by prioritizing God above everything else. Now, one of the ways they indicated that they prioritized God over everything else was by offering sacrifices and observing feasts and building a temple. But those actions themselves were not at the heart of their worship. At the heart of their worship was their heart, that they longed to value God above everything else. We do not worship God merely with our words and actions. We worship him in our hearts by valuing him above everything else. Now, when our hearts rightly value him, our actions and words will follow, which is what happens here in Ezra 3. The people had a heart for God. They wanted to meet with God, enjoy God, experience God, treasure God. And because they did so, because that was their, that was their heart's disposition, they offered sacrifices. They began the work of building the temple. They observed the Feast of Booze and other feasts as well. And again, what I'm arguing this morning is that we should have that same attitude. That we too, like the people in Ezra 3, should prioritize worship above everything else. Now on this side of the cross... Our worship, in terms of what it looks like when it's put into action, will be much different than what we see here in Ezra 3. We don't need to build altars anymore or temples or offer burnt offerings because Jesus fulfilled all of those things. He offered up his body as a once and for all sacrifice. To meet with God, we no longer need to go to a temple or for that matter to a church building. We simply need to go to Jesus. 
The glory of God dwells in him. And if we're in Christ, the glory of God now dwells in us. So in light of Christ's fulfilling work, in terms of actions, prioritizing worship will look much different for us than the people of Ezra 3. But hear me, the heart will be the same. We will want to treasure God above everything else. So when we talk about worshiping, and when I talk about prioritizing worship, I think it's important that we clarify what we mean. We need to clarify what we mean by the word worship. And what we mean by worship is valuing and treasuring God above everything else. But secondly, I think we also need to clarify, what does this type of worship look like when it's put into action? I think that's where Ezra 3 is also very helpful. Ezra 3 helps us to see the priority of worship, but it also helps us to understand what true worship looks like. To that end, there are three things here I just want to point out in the rest of our time together as it relates to what true and right worship looks like. All right, first thing. True and right worship means that we obey God and worship God on His terms. True and right worship means that we obey God and worship God on His terms. Notice throughout the passage that the people of Judah were intent to worship God in the way that God had told them to. I think this is an important part of the passage. Look first at verse 2. Verse 2. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedach, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. They built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they build as it's written. We see that same theme in verse 4. They kept the Feast of Booths, as it's written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. Again, in verse 10, we see this same attitude. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. So again and again, we see them doing what the word says. They, they follow the instructions that have been given in God's word. So hear this. If we're going to treasure God above all else, it means that we will also treasure his words and do what he says. In the case of Ezra 3, the people kept God's commands regarding worship and regarding the best way to approach God. For example, verse 4 told us that they kept the Feast of Booths as it's written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. Now that's actually a pretty big deal because in Numbers chapter 29, we find the instructions regarding the Feast of Booths and the instructions take 27 verses. In other words, there are a lot of rules about the types of sacrifices to offer. But the people kept these rules because they treasured God, and they trusted God, and they wanted to follow his commands. And they rightly recognized that when we come to God, we come to God on his terms, not our terms. I'm thinking of it this way. If I was a coach, and I had a player who, pro who proclaimed his great love for me as a coach, but then the player went out on the field and always did the exact opposite of what I told him or her to do. At some point, I would come to the conclusion that this player doesn't really love me as a coach. And I would also come to the conclusion that eventually this player needs to go on the bench. In the same way, if we say that we treasure God, but then we try to dictate the terms of what following him looks like, and we say, I'll be the one who decides what I do, well, that doesn't really work either, does it? We don't come to God on our terms. We come to God on his terms. Recently, I had the opportunity to share a gospel with a young lady, and that lady then proceeded to tell me after I shared the gospel with her that she's actually both a Christian and a Wiccan, or a witch, and she made it very clear that those two things were not at odds in her mind. Now, it was pretty obvious that she didn't want to have much of a conversation afterwards. She just wanted to let that follow me and then just get out of here, so I didn't get much of a chance to push back on that, but 
obviously the idea that you could follow Christ and follow some other religion at the same time is wildly inconsistent with the teaching of the Bible. There's only one way to God, and there is only one God. And the only way we can be saved is through the work of Jesus Christ, through the blood of Christ, which is what we sang about this morning. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And it's not Jesus plus other stuff or Jesus plus other religions. It's Jesus alone. Hear this. Worshiping God is not like going to a buffet restaurant where you get to pick and choose the parts of God that you like and you don't like. I really like his grace, his justice, not so much. I really like his mercy, but not his wrath. It doesn't work that way. Similarly, worshiping God is not like having a made-to-order cook where you go tell the cook, well, this is what I would like. You accommodate my needs. No, on the contrary, when we worship God, it's like going to a restaurant with a fixed menu. The menu is already set. You worship him in the way that he is prescribed or you don't worship him at all. Now, to be clear, there are lots of things that he doesn't prescribe for us in terms of the way that we worship. For example, if we think of all of life as an act of worship, which it is, he doesn't tell us what job we need to have. He doesn't tell us where we need to live or who we need to marry, how many kids we should have. He doesn't tell us what hobbies we should enjoy. Now, there are principles he gives us that might help us make all those decisions, but he doesn't lay out specifically for us, these are the things you need to do. Even as it relates to corporate worship, he doesn't tell us what style of music is best. He doesn't tell us how many verses to preach on each Sunday. He doesn't tell us how long the service should be. Now, again, there are principles in the word that might help us to make those decisions. But at the end of the day, there's quite a bit of freedom in terms of how we worship God. And what it looks like for me to worship or you to worship might be slightly different. And that's okay and good and part of the beauty of the diversity of the body. But having said that, there are some things that are very clear in God's word in terms of how we worship him. And on those things where the word of God is clear, we have no license to change what the word says. We come to the Father through Jesus, period. There's no other way. We're saved by grace, not by works. It's Christ alone who rescues us. And when we come to him, we are to repent of our sins and turn to Jesus Christ and live holy for him. In fact, in Romans 12:1, Paul implores us by saying, we are to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is our spiritual act of worship. To worship him then, according to Romans 12, is to renounce our sin, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, and then live in a way that's holy and pleasing to him. This is what the word of God tells us in terms of what our worship is to look like. And in saying that, I think we just need to acknowledge the proverbial elephant in the room here. Many Americans who claim to be Christians are unwilling to repent of their sins and offer up their bodies as a spiritual sacrifice. Instead, they're trying to worship God on their own terms. They claim to be followers of Christ, but they're unwilling to submit to the reign and rule of Christ as it relates to issues of marriage, or sexuality, or gender, or greed, or idolatry, or on and on and on. But hear me, the idea that you could claim to worship Christ but then ignore his word or twist his word to make it say what you want to say, that's crazy. Right? That would be like claiming you're a Huskers fan but not knowing the team wears red. It'd be like saying you're a huge Taylor Swift fan but not knowing any of her songs. It'd be like saying you love math but you hate numbers. Or to use an example here from Ezra 3, it'd be like the Israelites saying, oh yeah, we want to worship God, but we're not going to do what God's word says. We're just going to do it the way we want to do it. Now hear me clearly. We do not come to God on our terms. He is not a buffet or a made-to-order cook. To worship him rightly and truly means that we worship him on his terms. 
Now, obviously, we're not going to obey him perfectly. On this side of heaven, there will always be struggles with sin. But those who want to worship God will be committed to worshiping him rightly, which means worshiping him in light of the truth that he's presented, to worship him in the way that he has prescribed. And the reason they'll do this, those who are committed to worshiping, is because they recognize he's worthy of our worship. And also because they'll recognize when they worship him in this way, there is joy to be found. Which brings us to the second item here that we see in this passage regarding true and right worship. Item number two. True and right worship means we worship God with gladness and joy. Look at verses 10 and 11 here. Verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So last weekend, Noah and I went to the Iowa State-Oklahoma State football game. It has not been a great season for Iowa State so far. Yesterday was terrible too. But that was a fun game, the one that we went to, because the Iowa State offense actually moved the ball, and they actually won the game. It was interesting for me to watch the reaction of the crowd, in particular in light of some of the stuff I've been thinking about in the book of Ezra. Because there was a genuine joy whenever Iowa State scored a touchdown. Random strangers would start high-fiving each other, shouting and yelling and whooping. There was even some dancing, too. And listen, I've been to enough games to know that this response is not unique to that particular crowd. I'm sure the exact same thing happens at Husker games. Not yesterday, but other games, right? This happens. Because when you get excited and when you get happy and, and when you are, are thrilled about something happening, there's just this joy that wells up and you start responding with shouting, acclamation, maybe in some cases even dancing. But here's my question for you this morning. When was the last time you got that excited about the things of Christ? Now listen, I'm not trying to hang a, a weight of guilt on anybody's neck here. I know that emotions are different for every person. I know that the context of a football game is different than other contexts. I understand that there's spiritual warfare involved in our worship. I get all that. But hear me. When we taste the Lord's goodness, when we see his kindness toward us, when we engage in worshiping the king of the universe, it seems to me there should at least be some measure of joy. right? There should be some gladness. We were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we can see we were dead and now we're alive. We get to worship the king of the universe. We get to praise the one who saved us. I would hope that at some point, if not externally, at least internally, there's a part of us that just wants to shout with joy. I would hope that when we obey and see the wisdom of God's commands, our hearts would be filled with gladness. I would hope that even this morning, as we think about the privilege of worshiping our king, our hearts would be stirred towards joyful affection. I mean, we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. Jesus took our place. How could this not lead to joy? Is there any better news in the world than that? Listen, if you're here this morning, and there's no gladness in your heart when you think about Christ, there's no desire within you to praise Him, there's no joy that comes from hearing the good news, all you think when you're here this morning is, I've heard this before, then I would just gently ask you, do you actually know Christ? And if you do know him, what is inhibiting your correct worship? Because if we're worshiping him rightly, there will be gladness and joy. But having said that, we should also add a third descriptor of true and right worship from this passage. Third descriptor is this. True and right worship recognizes a day of greater and better worship is still to come. 
Now, this passage, we have to be honest, ends a little bit strangely. Look again at verses 12 and 13. Verse 12. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So here's my question for you this morning. Why were the older generations weeping when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid? By the way, the way it's set up in contrast with the joy here, I don't think we're meant to see this as a joyful weeping. I think we're meant to see this as a sorrowful weeping. So what were they weeping about? Well, I think the most likely answer is that they'd seen the glory of the first temple, Solomon's temple, and they recognized this temple was not going to match it. And so it saddened them because they knew things could be better. But in a nutshell, isn't that kind of life on this broken planet? We have much to be thankful for. We have much to be joyful about, no doubt. And at the same time, everywhere we look, there are the effects of sin. Broken bodies, broken relationships, broken hearts. Listen, in the case of Ezra 3, I don't know if the older generation was right to weep or not. Perhaps they were so looking back that they weren't able to celebrate God's present faithfulness. But right or wrong, you can understand why they were weeping. Because even if they were thankful, they knew that things weren't as they were supposed to be. And again, I would just say that describes our current context. We live in the already and the not yet. We've already experienced God's grace in major ways. We already know the joy of the Lord. And praise God that we do. But the pure joy of worship without any mixture of sin is not yet here. And so even when we rejoice... Even when we worship, even when we are shouting with joy, we know that there is something greater still to come. I don't know if you've ever experienced a moment before in corporate worship where you sense the Spirit of God was just working in a unique way. Maybe you're singing with the congregation and you could just sense the Spirit is up to something right now. Or maybe you were part of a moment where the Word of God was being preached and there was a quietness that fell over the crowd that just felt unnatural. Or maybe there's a time of prayer where you could just palpably sense the Spirit was at work. Now, I'll say those types of things don't happen all that often for me, but they've happened a few times. And when they do, I always feel like I'm getting just a small glimpse of what heaven will be like. And every time I do, it makes me want more. And the good news is this. For those of us who are in Christ, more is coming. When Christ returns and our sin is gone, and we are with him forever, we will experience more of his glory, more of his beauty, more of his power, and it's going to be awesome. But until then, we live in this kind of weird middle ground, the already and the not yet. We worship, and we do so with glad shouts even, with glad hearts, because we recognize great things have already happened. And yet there's a part of us that recognizes there's a better day still to come, and we long for that day. And so in the meantime, we have to whet our appetite as we're in this kind of weird in-between zone. We whet our appetite by worshiping him currently, by treasuring him and prioritizing him above everything else. And make no mistake, I think that is the overwhelming application of this passage. Prioritize the worship of God over everything else. And to be clear, again, when I talk about worship, I'm not talking about singing or burnt offerings or church services. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking primarily about treasuring God above everything. I'm talking about prioritizing your relationship with him above everything else. And so the question I have for you this morning is simply, is that your mindset? 
Is that the way you live on a day-to-day basis? Is the pursuit of God your greatest passion? Does everything in your life run through the prism of your relationship with Christ? At the end of the day, as followers of Christ, we are first and foremost worshipers. We treasure him above everything. It doesn't matter how good we are at sports. It doesn't matter where you are in your class rank for academics. It doesn't matter what type of car you drive or what type of house you live in. It doesn't matter how much money is in your bank account. It doesn't matter how many people know you. The only thing that matters in terms of what matters most is, are you treasuring Christ? Are you prioritizing worship of God above everything else? Or have you allowed your priorities to get out of whack? In Ezra chapter 3, the people rightly prioritize worship with God. Now, we shouldn't praise them as heroes because by the end of the book, it's clear they're pretty messed up too. But here, they get it right. And I think the challenge for us is to do the same, to prioritize worship, to pursue him more passionately than we pursue anything else for our joy, for our gladness, and ultimately for his glory. Let's pursue him, church. Let's pray. Yeah, we thank you for the reminder here in Ezra 3 of the priority of worship. And we pray that we would have that priority even this morning, that our hearts would treasure and value you more than anything else, Lord. That we would see you as the great king and worthy of our pursuit. So Lord, please, please help us to rightly prioritize worship with you. Help us to see that you are the great king worth following. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.